Tonight will be maybe a little bit different than, our, um, than a normal sermon that maybe I would preach or we might even have on a Sunday night. I'm still going to preach a sermon, um, but I think you'll find that this is going to be a lot more, um, I don't necessarily want to say casual, um, but uh, practical in the way I'm going to teach tonight. Um, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're only going to be looking at two verses. We're going to be looking at two verses that deal with a topic that I think just requires a little bit of uh, careful examination and clear teaching. And so my hope today is that we can find exactly that as we study God's Word here, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 31 and 32. If you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word together. The Word of God says this, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We, frankly, here in the year 2023, live in a culture, in a time, uh, in a situation where commitment in and of itself is very, very hard to get people to partake in. We can look at various kind of aspects of this, different areas of the culture in which this is true. Uh, I would speak as a pastor. I can say that it's definitely true when it comes to church membership. Church membership is a thing that was largely uncontested and was assumed throughout church history, but we find ourselves today in a situation where you have to go to great lengths to convince someone of uh, not only the biblical nature, but also the need and the value in church membership. But oftentimes people are very, very slow, very hesitant to commit to church membership. In fact, we, uh, as you know, if you're a member or if you're pursuing membership here, uh, we have a church covenant. And our expectation of our members is laid out in that church covenant. In order to join in a covenant relationship, covenant membership with Redeemer, you have to sign that church covenant. And there are many people that even uh, hearing the words church covenant or, or understanding that we have a church covenant is very off-putting to them because that church covenant, as general as it might be, and certainly as biblical as we believe it to be in all of the requirements that it lays out for membership, um, is still a commitment. And people today don't really like commitment. And this is true of marriage as well. Marriage in and of itself today is a, is a covenant, it is an institution that, for one, people are buying into less and less and less. And for two, people are getting out of and, and letting go of less and less and less. And there are various reasons, and I would hate to paint with an a, a overly large brush and just try and assume why every marriage ends in divorce or why every person is, is not marrying the person that they might be dating or courting or whatever the case may be, but... The fact remains that it is the case, and I certainly think it's partially due to the lack of willingness and, and value found in commitment. So today, as we think about marriage, and we think about that commitment, we come specifically to this portion in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, in two verses, has these words to say about divorce. First of all, pointing out something that uh, perhaps is obvious, perhaps is not, but divorce is not a new thing. Divorce has been around uh, as long as marriage has been around, or certainly as long as sin has been around, um, divorce has been around. And there's teaching in the Bible, even Moses direct, uh, speaks directly to the issue of divorce in the Old Testament in the law. 
And so as we come today to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus deals with this topic, we recognize, first of all, that this is a hard topic to teach on. Uh, and yet when I believe that the Bible speaks relatively clearly on, I don't think that the Bible is overly confused or clouded when it comes to the issue of divorce. And yet, even I will acknowledge it's a difficult thing to teach on. Why do we think it is that it's so hard to teach on divorce? I think that, again, there could be various reasons, but one of the reasons I think is because with divorce, we know, for all of us in here who have, have at all been touched by divorce, whether it be yourself or a family member or someone that you're close to uh, goes through a divorce, you see that with divorce comes a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and a lot of other kinds of baggage that frankly are just very difficult things to deal with. So my hope today is that we can just take a moment, and I don't think we ever have really here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, and just dedicate some time to teaching what I believe to be a biblical understanding of divorce, uh, and hopefully bring some clarity, but also hopefully apply the gospel to the area of divorce as well. And I want to start tonight by talking about what marriage is. It'd be hard to understand a, uh, at all what divorce is, or, or where it is applied, or or uh, what it does without first understanding what marriage is. First of all, marriage is a one flesh union. Now, when I say marriage is a one flesh union, I mean that it is intended to be a between one man and one woman, uh, that it is uh, a union that necessitates a becoming of one. It is, uh, as we know, it involves a kind of union that the Bible lays out as unique to the marriage covenant, unique to the marriage relationship with. Uh, with a sexual union as well. And I would even argue beyond that, as um, Matt Chandler writes in his book, Mingling of Souls, that it is just that. It is, a, it is an emotional connection that we find in marriage and through the intimacy of the marriage relationship and the marriage bed, that means that this relationship goes down even to the level of a mingling of souls, that we are uniting ourselves to another person such that uh, we are no longer one or individuals, but we come together as one flesh. It's like Matthew, when Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he goes on to say, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We hear this, this phrase, this verse, or other verses like it in the Gospels, uh, cited at marriage ceremonies, but maybe we don't oftentimes think about what are the ramifications or what really does it mean that they are one flesh and then that no man ought to separate what God has joined together? Well, this certainly we can understand as more than a friendship. It's more than a partnership. It is what we could also call a comprehensive union, that it is all-encompassing. The relationship, the union of a husband and wife extends far beyond just business affairs. It extends far beyond just life circumstances, far beyond just a partnership, a cooperation but is a comprehensive union that involves everything that we are. And because this is a one flesh comprehensive union, what we also know to be true is that it is not one that is easily broken. Uh, the, there's a, I know I, I even just mentioned recently in a sermon how I don't really like love Christian movies. I think there's, there's some value to them, but I'm not like crazy about them. But I do think there was value in this illustration that, we, that was... Um, kind of laid out in the movie Fireproof, where one of the guys on that movie, he was explaining what marriage is, and he took these two, this salt and pepper shaker and this really, really powerful glue, and he put it down the side of one of them and then stuck them together. And, 
And he said, if you try and take these apart now, you're going to do some serious damage to one or the other or both of these two shakers. And that's true of marriage as well. It is a union in such a way that when that union is separated, when it is, is rent apart, when it is torn apart, it indeed does a great amount of damage to the people involved, even if it's not always acknowledged that it does. So marriage is a one flesh union. Marriage is more than that. Marriage is a covenant. As I've already said, it's a partnership unlike anything else that the world knows or is familiar with. It's not a business relationship, but it is a covenant, which means it is a commitment. It is a promise that's backed by an oath. It's a covenant is another way of saying it is a similar kind of level of commitment as the way God relates to his people. That it is not a a contract that can just be done away with when one person isn't holding up their end of the bargain the way they're supposed to. It's much more than that. It is a commitment to one another that's backed by an oath saying, no matter what, if you listen to the marriage vows, you're saying, no matter what, I am committed to you and I am committed to this partnership till death do us part for better or for worse in sickness and in health. This is the covenant. This is the commitment that we make to one another in marriage. In addition, marriage is life long. As I've already said, it's one flesh. It is uniting. It is comprehensive. And it is also, as intended by God, to be life long. Divorce, then, is the breaking of this union. And that's why divorce is so destructive and why it's so harmful. You are taking this union that God has created, that he, he created and specifically put Adam and Eve in, in the garden, and he created with a good purpose and with a right design, is taking that and breaking it apart. It's not the way God intended, right? We see what marriage is as the Bible has laid it out, which then begins to give us a picture of how destructive and how harmful and how, how sad divorce is, that it is a reality in our world today. Now that we've kind of acknowledged what, what marriage is, we get to really what our text is about, and that is divorce. And like I said, I want this to be a very practical teaching. We know kind of what divorce is. Um, we all have either experienced it firsthand or have know someone that is, has gone through it and knows what it is. But we also know, I think most of us do, that there are cases in Scripture, if you don't know, I'm going to tell you, where divorce is permitted. And this is one of the questions that people will often have when it comes to divorce and one that Jesus even lays out here in Matthew 5. And so I want to talk a little bit about when divorce is allowed. And I use the word allowed or permitted intentionally. First of all, it should be said that the only reason that divorce is allowed is because of the effects of sin in the world. That divorce was not a thing, was not needed, was not necessary, nor would it have ever been thought of had sin not entered the world. In a sense, the fact that there are exceptions made in the scriptures for divorce serves as a picture for us of God's mercy, of his compassion towards sinful people. Because it's a reality that relationships are going to be torn apart, that relationships are going to be broken, that there's going to be destruction brought. And so the Lord in his kindness as a Mercy allows for divorce in these cases. This is the point Jesus makes to the Pharisees in, in Matthew 19. He says in 19, 3 through 8, as the Pharisees were coming, Matthew writes in chapter 19, verse 3 and following, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, 
Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, as we've already read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So here we see Jesus saying that, first of all, Moses never commanded that a certificate of divorce be given. This is an interesting and important correction that Jesus makes. You notice that the, the Pharisees says, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Well, when Jesus responds, what does he say? He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. Beyond that, the situation that Jesus is facing in his day and that he's kind of addressing with these Pharisees that they're bringing up, is that most of the Jewish teachers and scholars in this day had taken Moses' teaching about divorce and they had expanded it so that it allowed divorce for any reason. They had so manipulated what Moses had written with regards to, the, to divorce when he spoke and he wrote in the law saying that if a man were to divorce his wife because of finding some sort of, uh, some sort of uncleanness in her, that he, if he were to divorce his wife and she went and married another, and if that other man died, then he was not allowed to then remarry her because of defilement. And they've taken this passage when he says if he finds any sort of uncleanness in, in her, they had taken this passage and so expanded it, so abused it to where anything that a husband in this time, a Jewish man wanted to divorce his wife for, he could. If the wife burned dinner, see ya, you're out of here. Here's your papers, divorce, I'm going to find me a new wife that doesn't burn dinner. It was, it was exactly that way. It was just that easy for many of these Jews in their understanding for a man to divorce his wife for any reason or virtually no reason at all. At the drop of a hat, a husband, if he wanted, could divorce his wife and go and marry someone else. So Jesus is speaking into this situation when he writes, when he speaks here in Matthew in both of these cases. He's addressing these false presumptions, these teachings, and he is teaching what the law of God actually upholds, what it actually lays out, what it actually put forth, puts forth. And in the scriptures, as Jesus then lays out in his teaching, and we see further throughout the New Testament, there are two grounds for divorce, two situations that we see in the New Testament where divorce is allowed, where it is permissible. The first is maybe the most obvious if you are have studied this at all or looked into what the scripture says, and that is with regards to sexual immorality or impurity. And we see this in our text in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 32, he says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. So we see here an exception is given by Jesus even here in this passage and in other places in the scriptures when Jesus is speaking about divorce. This is an exception that he makes. There are some occasions in the other Gospels, in, the, in, the, um, in Mar, uh, excuse me, Mark and Luke, that omit this, this exact phrase, that they don't include where Jesus says, and except on the ground of sexual immorality. 
But most commentators would say that's probably not because he didn't, that wasn't the case, but because that was assumed. It was so clearly understood in their tradition and their understanding that sexual immorality was an exception made for divorce. If there ever was an exception, that was the one. What we see here clearly, so the first, first reason to divorce, the first allowance for divorce is in the case of sexual immorality or sexual impurity. The second cause, the second allowance for divorce is a little bit different. And it's in the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is one of the other kind of main passages that teaches in regards to divorce. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15, where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But, in verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Here we see the second example of when it is allowed for divorce, when divorce is acceptable, when, when it is allowed in the scriptures. And that is in the case where a, a believer, now this might be, for example, if, if a husband and wife are married and the woman comes to faith in Christ, that she accepts Christ uh, as her Lord and Savior, she is now saved, she is a part of the church, but her husband is not, he is still unbelieving. There have been plenty of cases, plenty of situations in which a spouse in that case might not desire to remain married to that person. If they have, especially in this case, left Judaism and gone and joined Christianity. Or in other cases where the unbelieving partner is unwilling to remain in the marriage. Uh, in that case, as Paul lays out, as he makes clear, that person is free. They are not required to uh, to remain married to that person, but in that case, divorce is allowed. These are the only two clearly stated exceptions in Scripture for divorce. And one thing, again, that I want to make clear is that while divorce is permitted in these cases, it is never commanded nor is it required. In fact, even in these really difficult cases, I think the posture of the gospel and the posture of what Christians ought to be is one of reconciliation. Reconciliation always ought to be our first and primary goal when it comes to these kinds of situations. No one is ever required if you are, you know, heaven forbid, you should find yourself in a situation of an unbelieving spouse. Divorce is permitted. But by no means are you required to divorce that person. Reconciliation is always always more desirable than divorce. And we need to make that clear. We ought not to abuse these allowances for divorce such that we can make anything a reason for divorce. And so we recognize that as believers, we ought to come to an understanding that reconciliation is first and foremost our, our priority when it comes to marital strife of any kind. But because we live in a fallen, in a fallen world, these things are going to happen. Not only that, but because we live in a fallen world, there are always going to be even more difficult cases. 
As a pastor, I wish that every case were so clear-cut as my husband or my wife cheated on me and is unrepentant. My husband or my wife has gone off and is living with another woman, another man, and they don't want anything to do with me. I wish every case were that clear-cut. But it's not always, is it? There's almost always more things that complicate the situation. And also more questions to be asked. You might have these questions in your head right now. I hope you do. If so, hopefully we can get to them a little bit. But there are other cases, more difficult cases, that need to be addressed. First of all, there could be a case of abandonment by a professing believer. In other words, it's really easy, as we see in 1 Corinthians, if a Christian is married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever refuses to remain married to them. That case is kind of open, shut, pretty cut and dry, right? Well, the scriptures are clear. You are free. You are no longer bound to that person. But it becomes a lot more difficult in cases where the person who is now refusing to remain in the marriage, who is now leaving the marriage, is professing faith in Christ, right? It gets a lot more difficult. Now, I think there are potentially some solutions to the question, to the answer, and certainly it's going to take a great amount of wisdom on the part of church leaders, on the part of elders, pastors, those who are counseling in these situations. But one of the things I would suggest, first and foremost, is that that sounds to me like a prime case for church discipline. If that person is a professing believer, then what ought to happen is we ought to begin the process of church discipline for that person. And hopefully, what's that going to do? That's going to result in reconciliation both between them and the church and between the husband and the wife. But in those cases, if the sin is continual, if it is habitual, if it is unrepentant, and the person refuses continually after the whole process of church discipline, then what is the end result of that? They're to be treated as an unbeliever, right? And in that case, I think very likely the conclusion that's going to be drawn is that person was abandoned by an unbeliever. That's a very difficult thing to try and wrap our brains around, right? How we can come to solid conclusions on this and, and just definitively say that person was not a believer. When, as we know, we don't know their heart. That's why, as I said, these situations are difficult and call for a great amount of wisdom. What about cases of abuse? This is another very serious situation and one that has to be addressed if we're going to be faithful to teach and understand what the scriptures would, t- would tell us in regards to divorce. Let me just say this. This is not an easy situation to be in. It is not. And if ever I meet a woman or a, a, or a man who is living in a situation where they're dealing with abuse, they're being abused physically by their spouse, then the first thing I'm going to tell that person and what I would hope any other person would is you need to get out of that situation. You need to remove yourself from that situation. It would be wrong to take biblical teaching on divorce and take that to lead us to people to tell them to stay in an abusive situation. I think that would be a misuse of a biblical understanding of divorce. Now, you might notice one thing I didn't say. I didn't say, go get a divorce. I think that God is good enough and his grace is powerful enough that even in situations where abuse is happening, the Holy Spirit can still move, reconciliation can still be found, grace can still be applied, even in those cases. And so in those cases, because I see no definitive answer in Scripture telling us that abuse is a reason 
for divorce, it is an allowance for divorce, while I would encourage any person, remove yourself from that situation, separate from that person, if, if need be, get whatever intervention needs to happen, whether that be police, whether that be counselors, whether that be social services, whatever needs to happen, get that situation remedied immediately. But then, as with every other case, let's do what's necessary to start pursuing reconciliation. This is a radical approach. And I understand that. Not only is it radical, it's difficult. To take the case of someone, who, especially if they claim to be a Christian, who is, abusing a, who is abusing a spouse and say reconciliation can be found. It's a difficult situation. In fact, it might even seem impossible. But we all know that nothing is impossible for God, right? Reconciliation, no matter how extreme it might seem, is within God's ability to pull off and to accomplish. And so, even in difficult cases, we need to be careful that we do not simply let our desires, our emotions, guide us into declaring things okay, which Scripture has declared to be wrong. That's why I'm speaking in this way. That's why I'm kind of approaching it with such caution. Because there's, there's two wrong answers here, right? There's, there's a sort of, uh, of ditch on both sides that we can fall into, where we can be overly zealous in our instruction to people to divorce or our allowance for divorce so that there is never almost any reason not to divorce. But we can also err on the other side, right? Where the scriptures have laid out a grace, an ability, an allowance for divorce, and yet we refuse it. Or, even if we don't refuse it up front, perhaps treat that person who does divorce in a particular way to where it's equivalent to us giving it our full condemnation. And that brings me to the last point that I kind of want to lay out for us today. And that is the relief that grace brings. Divorce is a terrible, difficult, harmful thing to marriages, to humanity. It's destructive, it's difficult. And there have been many Christians who've been affected by divorce. Those who have been through, the, through divorce, some for biblical reasons, some not for biblical reasons. To those who've been divorced, one of the first things that we should say is, God loves you. If you're a Christian in here today and you've been through divorce, guess what? That divorce has not nullified God's grace. His love for you has not diminished an inch because of your divorce. Whether it be for biblical reasons or not. God's love for you has not diminished. His grace, his mercy has been extended to you and it is irrevocable. So don't think that because your marriage ended that you're some sort of exile or second class Christian. That's not the case. All of those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, all of those who trust in him, what does Romans 8.1 say about us? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the first thing that I would, I would say to a believer who's been through divorce. Let us not misuse this sermon, though, the Sermon on the Mount, to teach justification by works. Now, what do I mean by that? When we read the Sermon on the Mount, 
It might be very easy for us to read, okay, this is what Christians are supposed to do. This is how they're supposed to live. And if they don't live this way, they're doomed. They're going to hell, right? Is that a proper application of the Sermon on the Mount? I would love to hear from you guys. Is that a proper application of the Sermon on the Mount? No. It's not. In fact, one commentator has noted, and I think uh, to a large degree of truth, that the Sermon on the Mount is largely a sermon about the law. It's a teaching about the law, about obedience, about what it means and what it looks like to live as a Christian. And we all know that no one is ever saved by their obedience to the law. No one is ever saved by living right. No one could ever line themselves up next to the Sermon on the Mount and say, how well do I measure up? And then determine or, or trust, put their assurance in how well they do on that test. But we can do that sometimes with some of these difficult issues like divorce, where we can say, well, I've kind of failed in this way. I've been divorced, and Jesus specifically says in the Sermon on the Mount that if someone gets divorced, they've committed adultery. And we could think ourselves doomed. But brothers and sisters, that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that our salvation is found in Christ and him alone, his finished work on the cross. That his righteousness is imputed to us when we trust in him by faith. So that regardless of what works we have or have not done or what sins we have or have not committed, salvation is ours because of Christ Jesus. And while there is a risk of misunderstanding or misrepresenting God's grace in this way, to say that we are somehow nullifying God's grace if we sin in a specific way, there is also a risk of justifying our sin to make it more palatable to gain acceptance. And here's what I mean. I have talked with plenty of people who have been divorced. And I have rarely, if ever, talked to a person who would say that their divorce was sinful or that they didn't divorce for biblical reasons. Now, many of them have. But have all of them? Has Everyone that is in the church who has divorced, have they all been divorced for biblical reasons? The answer is no. But what can sometimes happen is that as Christians, we could so desire to, to, because we want to be obedient to the scriptures, we don't want to think of ourselves as having done this wrong, right? That we can justify it in our own heart. Well, perhaps my spouse never cheated on me, but they definitely came close. They definitely were doing things that, constituted abandonment. These are the kind of things that you will actually hear, right? Where people will kind of justify their sin rather than doing what they ought to do. It needs to be clearly stated that, that life after divorce is not life in a perpetual state of adultery. This is what some people think, that if I, if I divorce, and it was for an unbiblical reason, that for the rest of my life, no matter what, I'm living in a state of perpetual adultery. That's not what the Bible teaches. That is wrong. In fact, when Jesus is speaking about divorce, he says, if a woman or a husband, a man, goes and marries someone else, that he calls it an actual marriage. That you are actually married to that person. Indicating that the second marriage is just as valid as the first. We can't say that that person has been living in a sort of perpetual state of adultery. Adultery has been committed in many of those cases. What then is the remedy to that? 
What then is the answer, the solution to that? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not to try and justify our own divorce to make it more palatable or to fit in or to make people view us in a, in a different light. We ought never to be concerned with what other people think of us or whether or not other people will accept us when we consider how we're to deal with our sin. You know what we're called to do with sins like this? Every, the same thing we do with every other sin. We're to confess it to God and cry out for forgiveness. And guess what, church family? God forgives. He does. When we, when we commit a sin of adultery through divorce, it does not mean, I, I stated it already, but I can't state it enough, it does not mean that grace is beyond your reach or you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Forgiveness is still there and it is still available. And guess what? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is far better Rather than to try and justify divorce, if we have, if we have been in a, in a divorce, even if it be an unbiblical divorce, it is far better rather than try and justify it and make it somehow biblical, it's better to say, Father, I have sinned. To beat our chest the way the tax collector did, saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is that not the posture all Christians are called to come? Take heart in that. If you in here today have experienced divorce, God loves you and his grace is for you. And then the next thing we need to sort of acknowledge is that I want to turn to the rest of the church and say whether or not you've been through divorce, if you're a part of the church, then we need to understand what our responsibility is to those who have been through divorce. Because we have a responsibility as well, don't we? As the rest of the church. First of all, I'd say we have the responsibility to make sure that feelings of judgment and harshness and being treated different are unfounded, right? If a person comes to our church and thinks that they are somehow viewed differently because of their past, whether it be divorce or otherwise, let it be unfounded, right? Let it not be because we are actually doing that. The second we ought to do is to extend the same love and grace that we ourselves need. Because divorce finds itself in this list, right, of a lot of sins that we are guilty of. You know what else Jesus has just previously said? That if you look after a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. He says that if you hate your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. And we sometimes think, well, yeah, but, I mean, divorce, right? That's so much worse. But it's not. None of us, when we try and measure up ourselves to the Sermon on the Mount, is going to be good enough. We're not going to measure up. Jesus himself says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. He wasn't saying that you have to do more good deeds than the Pharisees. He's saying you need to have a righteousness that is not quantitatively more than the Pharisees, but that is qualitatively different than the Pharisees. How do we obtain that righteousness? How do we obtain that righteousness? I, I want to hear you answer. Through Christ, that's right. It's his righteousness credited to our account. That is how we will be saved. That is how we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so we need as, as believers, as the church, to extend the same grace to those who have experienced divorce as we ourselves need. 
each and every day. But then the final thing that we do need to do is we need to make sure that we foster confession of sin, not a denial of sin. And we've specifically addressed that with divorce, that that can be a thing that people do where they, they will sort of justify their own sin rather than do what we ought to do, and that is confess our sin and rest in God's grace and experience his mercy. And that's true for all sin, right? And so what we need to be doing is fostering a, an environment of confession of sin. And that's hard, right? It's hard to, to develop a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ so that we are confessing our sin to one another. Not many people are doing it. We think because we've kind of moved away from Roman Catholicism that we've done away with, with the confessional booth and therefore we no longer confess sin to one another. Many have even said, well, I confess my sin to the Lord and that's all I have to do. But is it? That's not what James says. He says to confess your sin one to another. And so, church family, let us begin to foster and, and develop a, an environment where we foster confession of sin rather than hiding and denying our sin. And I'm going to tell you what, that's going to be an environment that's inviting to all. Where stigmas surrounding divorce or pornography or whatever else it might be will be removed. Not because we are downplaying sin, but because we're upplaying God's grace. Because that's what the gospel does. Divorce is a difficult thing. It's a destructive thing. It's a thing that God hates. But even in that, God's grace is sure. His mercy is new every morning to the point that even if you are here in this place today and you have been divorced for an unbiblical reason, God's grace is good. So I hope that this teaching on divorce has been, A, instructive, helpful. If you have more questions on it, I know that it is a difficult thing and you might still have questions, come talk to me. Uh, I would love to talk with you more. Aaron, I think what I've presented is a, is a pretty accurate representation of what all of us as elders believe in regards to divorce. But if you have more questions, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, but hopefully what in addition we've seen here today is is that the grace of God is good, right? So that it covers even the most difficult and damaging of sin. Let's pray, and then we're gonna spend some time in prayer together as a church.